You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. So if you haven't been following us in the Daily Thunder stuff, we've been walking uh, back through Ephesians. So for some of you who feel like I've never gotten out of Ephesians, I haven't. (laughs) And as I get close to the end, we just start over, and that way I can just stay in Ephesians forever. Uh, But we started back through, and we've been walking through Ephesians afresh, and we're currently in chapter 2, looking at verse 7. And if you have your Bibles, what I'd like to do is read verses 1 through 7, just to kind of give some context and uh, just the flow of what Paul is saying here in the passage. So this is Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them we also once lived in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But... God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, get this, that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul is talking about the power of God. It starts in chapter 1 verse 19. And he's building several illustrations of this overwhelming, indescribable power of God. How do you begin to describe the power of God? Paul says it's impossible. You cannot describe the power of God. And isn't it a phenomenal thought that if the power of God is indescribable, how much more the God behind that power? And Paul says, do you realize that God's power is indescribable? But let me give you a few illustrations of how that power was demonstrated. Number one was the life of Jesus which is chapter 1, verse 20, down to verse 23. And Paul says, God, think about this. Here is Jesus, deader than a doornail. I mean, he is food for worms pushing up daisies. I mean, he is not just dead. He is like dead. He's like dead, dead. Right? And we know that he died. We understand that. But for whatever reason, we tend to forget the fact that he's like, go down to the morgue, pull out a body, dead. Right? He's not faking it. He's not like closing his eyes with that little squint going, ha ha, I tricked him. Right? He's, he's literally physically dead. And how did God demonstrate his power? Oh, the father reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus in, and brought him into physical life. That is incredible. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, but if that wasn't good enough, he brought him into the heavenly realms, sat Jesus at his right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. All things are placed beneath his feet. He was given head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, that is quite an impressive reality of power. 
And then Paul says, oh, let me give you another illustration. That was so exciting. And in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, he gives the second illustration, which is you. And he says, do you recognize that you are a demonstration of the power of God? Oh, how am I a demonstration of the power of God? Paul says, hey, you were dead. Not physically, obviously, spiritually. And just as the Father reached into the physical deadness of Jesus and brought Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life, so he has reached into our spiritual deadness and yanked us from spiritual death and brought us into spiritual life. Please contain your excitement. (laughs) But that is amazing. Do you realize that in Jesus you have life? Please, don't run the aisles. Don't wave white hankies. Don't even smile. I mean, hello, this is good news. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? That I was once dead, and now I am alive. And if that wasn't good enough, which it would have been, Paul says, do you know what he's done with you? He's taken you spiritually, brought you into the heavenly realms, seated you in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and because all things have been placed underneath his feet, all things have been placed underneath your feet. I mean, that is an incredible demonstration of his power. And Paul says, here you were deader than a doornail spiritually. In fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Yeah, and nobody can get out of that. Nobody can say, well, that one doesn't apply to me. Because the reality is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That that every single one of us, no matter how good you think you might be, no matter if you grew up in the church, no matter, hey, if you did all the right things, you still have this upon you. And then what's interesting in verses two through three, Paul begins to kind of give definition to your deadness. And of course, we don't want to dwell on all that, but but look what he says in verse two. He says, "You're you're, you're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world. Do you know how we lived in our death and our sin? We lived in the foolish stupidity of the world. That how, how did you reason? You reason from the world. How did you define success? You define success by the world. What did you think was pleasurable? Hey, what the world defined was pleasurable. What did you find relaxing? That which the world defines as relaxing. And you were living under the authority, under the same mindset that the world has. By the way, just for clarity's sake, Paul says this is who you once were, not who you're supposed to be. So just as a side note, if you're, if you're starting to recognize or the Holy Spirit starts pointing on something, it's like, yeah, you still have that in you, you realize that's death stuff. That's not life stuff. And these, this, this stuff is not to be in you. Do whatever you want with that. <laughs> He says, not only did you live according to the course of the world, the mindset, the the thought process, the philosophy of the world, he says, but you also lived according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's not saying you were demon-possessed. So please please hear that. It's not saying that when I'm dead spiritually, when I live in sin, I'm demon-possessed. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that same spirit that energizes and influences and dictates the evil forces, you are living under that same spirit. It's that spirit of rebellion. It's that spirit of darkness. It's a spirit of death. It's a spirit of sin. It's a spirit of I want my own way. It's a spirit of self-protection. It's a spirit of self-seeking. It's a spirit of self-sourcing. It's a spirit of... And don't look at me that way. We all live this way. (laughs) Haven't we? 
And we said, hey, God, I want to do it my way, and I want to self-protect, and I want to self, and I just, this is all about me, 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 me. And that is the same spirit that works and energizes the demonic realm. And because I'm living in that same spirit, it's like I've aligned myself with the demonic. That doesn't mean I'm demon-possessed. Please hear me. You could be demon-possessed. But you don't have to be demon-possessed to be influenced by that same spirit, which is a scary thought. He then goes on, and he says in verse 3, you also lived in the lust of your flesh. And it's interesting, that word for living in the lust of your flesh has this idea, the Greek word uh, is this idea of pacing back and forth. What were you doing? You were pacing back and forth in the lust of your flesh. Lust doesn't necessarily mean sexual. It just means anything that you just crave and desire and you just have to have. And it's just that Eve lusted after the fruit in the garden. It wasn't sexual. It was just that she saw it and she just had to have it. And she just, she was willing to do anything it took to get it. And Paul says, do you know how you lived? There was something going on on the inside of you where it's like you couldn't even help yourself. You didn't even want to do it. The illustration I keep coming back to is like you're, you're tossed into a washing machine and the washing machine is just tumbling you over and it's just the thump, the thump, the thump, the thump. And you may not even want to be there, but it's like you just can't help yourself. Haven't you experienced that before? Where there's some habit, some addiction, some behavior, and you're just, you, you hate it, but you love it, and you love it, but you hate it, and you don't want to be in it, and you're, it's like you're walking back and forth, just going, oh, I just hate this stuff. And you're like in a washing machine, you're just ba-bump, 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 and you're just, and Paul says, you know how you lived? You lived in this washing machine of the lusts of your flesh, and you had no control over it. You were just at the whim of sin in your life. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul goes on and says, you are also doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So whereas the earlier one is like you had no control over it, you were just being tossed around however, the, however sin wanted to deal with you, this one here has this idea that from the, from the insides of who you are, you are creating sin. In other words, you were so loving this reality that you were being inventive, that you were doing the desires, that, that it was from the insides of who you are, and you were just like an artist, and you were painting a masterpiece called sin. Isn't that a scary thought? And because of all of that, Paul says, you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So here you are. You are deader than a doornail spiritually. And that's miserable. And you, you, don't, you don't have to look too far in the world to recognize that that is miserable because that's how the world lives. And Paul says, this is no longer who you are. And if you look at verse 4, verse 4, those first two words may be the two greatest words in all of Scripture because contained in the two words is like the entirety of the gospel itself. It says, but God. Isn't that a great phrase? That here I am in de deadness and darkness and damnation and just it, is just, it is so horrid. And yet God stepped into the middle of that and brought forth life. I love what Paul says in Colossians. I've been really just getting excited about this verse. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Do you recognize that what God has done in you is he has taken you from the domain, the power of darkness— and he yanked you out of the domain, the power of darkness, and he transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. That no longer are you under the authority of darkness. No longer are you under the thumb of the power of darkness. Hey, no longer are you under the kingdom of, of, of this junk. Do you know what's happened? You've been set free. You've been redeemed. And he's been brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Hey, what was death is now life. What, what was now hatred is now love. Hey, what was all dark and, and damned? Hey, this thing is full of life and joy. And, and it's all centered on a person. His name is Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Please contain your excitement. Now, if you look at verse 4, Paul explains this whole thing. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy. He's going back into the Old Testament and he's pulling out one of the key themes of who God is in the Old Testament. And he says, our God is a God of hesed. This, this mercy idea that, hey, I don't deserve it, but yet he still gives it to me anyway. Kind of an idea. That God who is so abundant in this hesed mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, just ponder that, even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. So here I am, according to Romans, right? I'm shaking my fist in God's face. Here I am, living in rebellion and sin. And while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I did not deserve it. I could not earn it. For by grace, I have been saved. That is phenomenal when you think about it. That this is a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God in my life. And when the world looks at my life, they should see the demonstration of God's power. Why? Because they see his redemptive power being demonstrated in my life. Not just, oh, I went to the altar, bumped my head once, but that I'm living a life filled with the Spirit of God. That this redemptive work isn't just a one-time thing. It is an ongoing reality of the Christian life. Or as we like to say around here, it's not just the big S salvation, right? Woo, I'm saved. Yes, that is that. But it's the Every single day I am being saved. And there is coming a day where I will be saved. Because it is a past, present, and future concept. That this redemptive thing is, that's how we live as Christians. We live in the redemptive flow of his grace every moment of every single day. Now, as you continue on, he says in verse 6, again, he has raised us up and seated us together with him in heavenly places. And again, we looked at this last week, but it's interesting that this idea of he raised us, he seated us, and he made us alive in verse 5, each of those have this prefix with it, which is the word with. It's the Greek word soon. Uh, that word with, it's interesting. You, you begin to, what you begin to recognize is that we are made alive with him. You're not made alive outside of him. You are only made alive with him. Isn't that awesome? Thank you. In verse 6, you have been raised up, not been raised up outside of him. You've only been raised up with him. And then you've been seated, not just seated anywhere. You have been seated with him. It's really strong. It's very emphatic. In other words, everything that God is doing in your life has Jesus at the center of it. It goes back to the Second Peter 1, 3 passage for in him is all things that you need for life and for godliness. That the very center of your life better be Jesus. Why? Because the only thing that God is doing in your life is Jesus. Hey, you look at the blessings in chapter 1. Every single blessing that God has for you finds its fulfillment in Jesus. God has not given you anything outside of Jesus. Hey, when you need love, he does not give you love. He gives you Jesus who becomes your love. Hey, when you need joy, he does not give you joy. He gives you Jesus, who is the fullness of joy. Hey, when you need peace, he does not give you peace. He gives you Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Are you getting this? 
that, hey, what is God doing in my life? Jesus. What is he giving me? Jesus. What is the fullness of my life? Jesus. 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 Are you getting this? And there's nothing that God is wanting for you outside of him. Jesus says, this is eternal life. Oh, what's eternal life? That I get something? No, you get someone. His name's Jesus. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they might know, gnosko you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the fullness of eternal life? Jesus. Oh, so when I die, I get to go to heaven. Why is heaven heaven? It's because Jesus is there. Don't go to heaven if Jesus is not there. Well, I know, but I, hey, gold streets, mansions, who cares? If Jesus is not there, I, all right, I'm excited about this. Now, take all of that and come to verse 7. Verse 7 starts, so that. What does that mean? He's given you the purpose of this whole thing. Why has God t- reached into your death and pulled you and transfer you, transferred you into the kingdom of his dear son? Why is it that he is demonstrating and showcasing his mercy and his grace and his love towards you? Why is it that all this is taking place? Why is the but God there in verse 4? Paul says, oh, let me tell you. Verse 7. So that, the purpose of all this, so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus. Did you get that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Obviously, none of you got that because you'd be standing up and cheering. So let me walk you through this. This is phenomenal. So that, again, it's a purpose thing. So that in the coming ages, it's interesting in, the, in the, that phrase, in the coming ages, it's, a, it's kind of a generic term for this idea of eternity. In other words, you can't pin this down. It's just like he's saying forever. So forever, God is going to be doing something. What is he going to be doing? He's going to be showing, and that word actually has this idea of to reveal or to demonstrate. So what is God going to be doing? Forever. Think about this. For all eternity, God is going to be demonstrating something. Now, it's interesting, that word to show, that verb to show, don't, don't get lost here, but that word to show is in the middle voice. Oh. I know like one nerd got excited, but if you're not a nerd, hold on one second. Let me explain this to you. That phrase, show, in a middle voice, Uh, we know active voice, right? The subject is doing the action. Uh, The classic example, the boy hit the ball, right? The boy, the subject, is doing the action of hitting the ball. If it's passive voice, the boy, the subject, is receiving the action, meaning the boy got hit by the ball. He didn't do it, but he received the action. Everyone still tracking? That's active and that's passive. The middle voice, though, is interesting, and there's different ways you can understand the middle voice, but Here, what's happening is the one who is doing the action also receives the action. This morning, I looked in the mirror, and there was a little bit of 
fluff on my face. And uh, I wanted to get rid of the, the fluff on my face. And so I took a razor, and me, the subject, did the action of shaving my face. But I also received the action. My face got shaved. So though I'm doing the action, I'm the one receiving the action. That's this idea. Think about this. God is showing. He is demonstrating. He's the one revealing. But he's the one who gets the benefit from this whole thing. Does that make sense? So God is demonstrating something. He's revealing. He's, he's doing this action. But in so doing, it's like he is giving himself glory by doing it. So ponder this way. When you look at the purpose of redemption, yes, you could say, woo, we receive the action of his redemption. That when you look at Jesus upon the cross, we receive the benefit of that. Praise the Lord. But he actually is the one who gets the benefit from that. Isn't that a crazy concept? That it's like he gives himself glory by saving us. That same idea, by the way, shows up in chapter 1 when you look at the blessings. When you look at the blessings in chapter 1 from verse 3 down to verse 14, it's interesting. God is blessing you. Praise the Lord. That we have blessings. Yes, we do. And every single blessing is in Jesus. Woo, that's phenomenal. But you realize, if you look at verse 6, verse 6 says, to the praise of his glory. If you look at verse 12, that we should be for the praise of his glory. Look at verse, verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Do you know why God is blessing us? God is blessing you so that you in turn would turn that back toward him and your life actually becomes the declaration or the praise of his glory. So think about this. God blesses you, but in so you receive the benefit of that. Praise the Lord. But as he blesses you, he actually blesses himself and he is giving himself glory because you get the blessing. Isn't that crazy? So look at the redemptive thing of what God is doing in your life, verse 7. Here is God bestowing upon you his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. And in so doing, he actually is the one who gets the benefit of that. In other words, do you, <laughs> this is such a cool idea, that God's chief aim is to give himself glory. That's not selfish. That's not prideful because he's not selfish, nor is he prideful but he is worthy of all majesty, all honor, all fame, all glory. And so every time that God works in us, it actually returns back to him, or it should, return back to him as to the praise of his glory. And we become declarations, if you will. We become mouthpieces. We become testimonies declaring to the heavenlies of who he is and his incredible majesty. Okay, some of you didn't get that either. <clears throat> okay, look at verse 7 again. So that, all hey, this whole redemptive thing is happening for the purpose that in the eternals, I mean forever and ever and ever, God might demonstrate something. Oh, what is he going to be demonstrating? Himself. 
It's interesting, as you look at verse 4 through 7, we find out that God is rich in mercy, verse 4, that he is great love, verse 4, with which he loved us. You find out that he is bestowing his grace upon you because it is by his grace that you are saved. And now in verse 7, he says that this grace is being demonstrated in kindness. Isn't it interesting? In just those few short verses, we find out that God's character is full of mercy, full of love, full of grace. And now Paul says this whole thing is wrapped up in kindness, that God is demonstrating who he is in you. Uh, I looked up Webster's 1828 definition of kindness and uh, made no sense to me at all. But there was a little section of the definition that I was like, that's cool. Webster says that kindness ever accompanies love. In other words, every time love is present, you will always find kindness. Or kindness, if you want to say it this way, kindness is the demonstration of love. That's a neat idea to me. That How do you define kindness? I was thinking again this morning, going, how do you define kindness? It's being nice. That's a horrible understanding of kindness. Uh, one dictionary said it was the quality of being friendly, generous, or considerate. And I didn't like that either. <laughs> but a demonstration, it, it is the revelation of love. I, I like that idea. That here is God who is love, who full of mercy and grace, and he is showing us his mercy, his grace, and his love through this action called kindness. So hey, when you look at your life and you look at the redemptive reality of what God has done in your life, what do you see? You see the character of God on demonstration, on display. Wouldn't it be neat if the world looked at you and saw the redemptive work that God has done in your life? and did not see you and in your whatever, they saw him and his redemptive love being on display through you. So look at verse 7. So that, the whole purpose of this thing, is that in the coming ages, forever and forever and forever into, the eternity, into, into eternity, which has no end, he is going to be demonstrating for his own glory his character. But get this. It says he's going to show, demonstrate, the surpassing riches of his grace. Again, that word there, show, has this idea of to demonstrate or to reveal. But here's what's really cool. That word, in my translation, to show, uh, beneath that word in the Greek is this idea of proving. Like in a legal case. Uh, you go into this courtroom, and there's two lawyers. And their job is to prove this person innocent, to prove that person guilty. And so what do they do? They bring out all this evidence and say, oh, dear judge, here is the evidence that proves this case. Do you know what God is going to be doing for all eternity? Think about this. There is no end to this. For all eternity, God is going to be standing up and saying, "Woo! I want to demonstrate my character. I'm going to demonstrate and give myself glory. I am going to point to something. And, I, and in, in the pointing, I'm going to be showcasing the surpassing greatness of my grace. Do you know what he's going to be pointing to? You. And for all eternity, God's just going to be going, Woo! see all these people? Oh, 
That is a picture of my grace. That is a picture of my kindness. That is a picture of my mercy. Oh, that's a great picture of grace, isn't it? Isn't that mind-boggling? He's not just doing that now. He's going to be doing that forever and ever 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 and ever. Are you getting this? And ever and ever and ever. For all eternity, God is going to be demonstrating his surpassing riches of his grace. The word there for surpassing, has it's the Greek word hyperbolo. It's used five times in Scripture. Three of them are in Ephesians. Two of them are in 2 Corinthians. Paul likes this word. Now, it's a rare word. I understand that. But three times in Ephesians, Paul says this idea of surpassing or immeasurable. And the word has this idea of throwing something. So I like to play disc golf. And so I, hey, I get up and I take my disc and I, and my disc goes, and I'm like, yes. And I'm playing with Phil Hartman. So Phil Hartman, right? Phil Hartman gets up and takes his disc and just, and that disc goes, Right? And you step back and you go, oh, ho, ho, ho. his went further. <laughs> That's this word. In fact, this is the word where we get our word hyperbole. And what's a hyperbole? It's like an over-the-top exaggeration. It's like it is so over-the-top amazing that it cannot be real. But in this case, it is. Because you cannot talk high enough of God's grace. In fact, the word in Greek has this idea of you pick up a javelin and someone throws a javelin and it goes 10 feet. Woo, impressive. Someone else picks up a javelin, throws it, it goes 100 miles. That's the word hyperbole, hyperbolo. And you're like, that's not possible. That's this word. Do you recognize that God's grace is that? It doesn't just supersede. It doesn't just, it's not just immeasurable. It's not just, well, it goes a little ways. It is surpassing. I mean, it is immeasurable beyond immeasurable. Riches has this idea of abundance. So this is the over-exceeding, surpassing, immeasurable abundance of his grace, which has been revealed and demonstrated in you. That God is going to be standing up and declaring for all eternity, wow, look at that. Really quick. Uh, Two two implications of this whole thing. Number one, God is showing off his immeasurable grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace, by lifting up Jesus. Did you notice that at the end of verse 7, all of this is toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, he is doing nothing in your life that is outside of Jesus. That the very center of what God is doing in your life is Jesus. That to me is phenomenal. And what is one of the ways that God is revealing his overwhelming, immeasurable grace? He's lifting up Jesus. So you could say that God is proving his kindness, his mercy, his love, and his grace by showcasing and lifting up Jesus. That when you look at Jesus, what do you see? You see the ultimate expression, the demonstration of mercy, of love, of grace, of kindness, because he is the fullness of all that. It's interesting to me that if Jesus is everything, which he is, 
practically for my life, do you, do you realize what that means? Is that I must come, humble myself, and embrace him with totality. That I, I, I cannot rest upon my own merit. I cannot rest upon my own resource. I cannot rest upon my own wisdom. I have no talent. I have to cling to Jesus. Because he used to be everything in my life. That I am to live dependent, surrendered, abiding in Jesus. But not just now. But for all eternity. Have you thought about that? That it's not that I'm dependent now and then when I get to heaven, I get to be independent. There's nothing of that in Scripture. Adam and Eve was made before sin and they, how did they live? They lived dependent, filled with the Spirit of God, resourced by the power of God. So do you think you're going to get to heaven and then suddenly you're going to be like, God, I've got this thing down. I'm, I'm good to go. I can do this on my own. No. For all eternity, Jesus is going to be the center of your life. For all eternity, you've got to be dependent upon him. For all eternity, you've got to cling to him. For all eternity, he's got to be your focus. And really what eternity is, is an expansion of what we're to be living right now. Now, there won't be any sin. Praise the Lord. (laughs) And hey, we get new bodies. Some of us need those. Caleb doesn't, but everyone else probably needs one. And, and hey, there's, hey this, but this thing is an expansion of the reality. Are you getting this? That it's not that, well, I'll live dependent now on earth. Praise the Lord. All right, I'll, Lord, I'll abide in you like a branch into a vine. And then suddenly we get to heaven and, oh, I'm the vine. No. How are you going to survive in heaven? You've got to stay tight with Jesus. But all the barriers will be removed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now you get to gnosko Jesus, which is pretty amazing. But in eternity, it's going to be epigonosko. It's an intensified version of gnosko. It doesn't change, folks. Hey, just as you are dependent now, so you're going to have to be dependent then. Hey, just as you're abiding now, you're going to have to abide then. Just as you're living surrendered now, hey, you're going to have to live surrendered then. I don't want to downplay the old hymns, but there's that hymn, you know, that that I'll carry my cross now, but then I'll exchange it for a crown. You realize the cross doesn't go away, folks. For all eternity, we're going to be shouting the praises of God because of the cross, because it is the demonstration of his love, his mercy, his grace, and his kindness. But I think that's amazing that what you and I get to experience right now is the practice run for all eternity. Uh, The second implication really quick is not only does Jesus, sorry, not only does God, the Father, lift up Jesus as the demonstration of his immeasurable, abundant grace, but he also points to you. That our lives is to be the reflection of God's character. Our lives are to be the reflection of his mercy. Our lives are to be a reflection of his love and his grace. And that's not just for the eternities you realize that is to be right now. That when the world looks upon you, they should see Jesus. When the world looks upon you, they should be overwhelmed by the reality of God's love. They should be overwhelmed by the reality of God's mercy. 
they should go, wow, I got to have what you have. Because I'm seeing the, the character and the life of God being demonstrated in and through you. Do you know what we call people who live like this? Yeah, we have to call them Christians. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, it is mind-boggling to me that not only do I receive a benefit of, of your mercy and your grace, and Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your redemptive power. But Lord, it is mind-boggling to me that by doing so, by demonstrating your mercy, your kindness, your love, and your goodness in my life, in turn, my life should be a reflection and a declaration of you. That I should be living under the praise of your glory. That I should be a mouthpiece screaming forth to the heavenlies the wonderful reality of who you are. Jesus, may my life reflect demonstrate the surpassing abundance of your grace that you have demonstrated in your kindness toward me in Jesus. And Lord, I don't know what it's going to look like for all eternity, but somehow my little life gets to be a reflection for all eternity of your redemptive love, power, and mercy. And Lord, what would it look like if, if how I'm living right now only expands into the eternities? And I, I get it, Lord, there's no sin, and, and hey, there's going to be an abundance and a richness in heaven. I get that. But Lord, I, I want to live properly now. I don't want to have to wait to heaven to be a demonstration. I don't want to have to wait to heaven to really start living out the Christian life. I want the fullness of the Christian life now. So Lord, could you do something in my heart and in my mind so that not only in the coming ages, but in this moment, you might demonstrate the immeasurable abundance of your grace and your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And may the world once again behold you because they see you showcasing yourself in and through our lives. Lord, I'm convinced that's what the world needs. The world needs the church to be the reflection of you. So Lord, would you purify your church? Will you do whatever is necessary in your church? to bring about the reality of the demonstration of yourself in and through us. May our lives give you glory, honor, praise, renown, majesty, for you alone are worthy. Love it, Jesus. We do give you praise and glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, 
you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.